0: Moms, we love you. You're a gift from God. Thank you. You give us uh, a variety of good things in life, not the least of which is is truisms. Um, We learned a lot of truisms from our moms, right? Um, Close the door. Why? Because we don't live in a barn, right? Um, If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? If you can't finish your dinner, then you obviously have no room for dessert, um, be careful because when you point your finger at somebody, what do moms say? You got three pointing back at you. You know? Oh, so if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge also? Our moms told many of us growing up. Here's one it's not funny unless what? It's not funny unless everybody's laughing. And that actually is, is a challenge. It's hard to be funny without making fun of someone now sometimes that person may may laugh but it's hard to be funny without making fun of someone there's a few things you need to have a good joke the first thing that you need is a little bit of truth right if you're not joking about something that doesn't have some basis in reality it's not going to be funny so if I say George George is so short he's got to get his niece to help him get something off the top shelf of the refrigerator Right? Like, there's nothing funny about that because George is a really tall guy. So, you know, you'd have to make a joke that's based in reality. Now, if I were to say, hey, can I get a volunteer on the way in? I was rushing. I saw a mustache laying in the hallway over in the corner. Can I get a volunteer to grab that mustache after church and, and see if George would like it back? Okay, so I, get, I got at least a few chuckles about that, right? Um, George, by the way, somehow, man, you, you, pull, you pull it off without the mustache... It's a, good, it's a good look, but not many people could pull it off. So you got to have, to be funny, you got to have a basis in reality. But the second thing you need for a joke is a butt, right? Every joke has to have a butt. George was the, the butt of that joke. Um, when you laugh, most of the time you're laughing at someone or at something. Even, even something as subtle as seeing somebody you know, slip and fall, and you give a little snicker before you go over and ask them, okay, that little snicker, you're laughing at them and their misfortune, right? Even sarcasm. Sarcasm is ultimately intended to make the other person feel stupid, right? So you say, hey, could you get me a cup of water? Oh, why? Are you thirsty? No, I'm not thirsty. I need the water to make a mud pie, right? It's like, why are you asking me a stupid question? Sarcasm is often making the other person feel like the butt, but, but here's the thing, tearing people down can actually be funny. And so even though mom said it's not funny unless everybody's laughing, it, it's funny, it just may not be appropriately funny. It may not be funny in a godly way, right? And it is hard to make a joke. The easiest joke to make maybe without tearing other people down is to tear yourself down, right? To tease or make fun or belittle yourself, which may be okay to a point, but at a certain point we even need to be careful about that right, about tearing ourselves down. I know a, a, a pastor who does stand-up comedy, like sort of as a hobby on the side, and he's known when he goes to comedy clubs as the clean comic, and he's like, it's really, really hard. I, I, I said, what, what do you make fun of? He's like, I just make fun of myself, right, because as the clean comic, he's like, there's clean, and then there's pastor clean, right, like I can't, I can't cross any lines at all. Perhaps humor that is the safest is just humor that laughs at sort of the bizarre oddities of, of life, the circumstances and the conditions of the world that are just, you know, either gonna make you cry or make you laugh, or like a squirrel trying to get in a bird feeder, you know, like that's a good that's a good laugh, right? Probably the squirrel is the butt of the joke, but I don't think he minds. Now, listen, I think laughter is really good. I love to laugh. I think Christians should laugh. I think we should actually seek out ways to laugh because it reminds us of the joy of life and can be stress relieving. Um, And I'm not even saying that there's not a lighthearted way to tease somebody, right? And and, and be fun and have fun. Um, But too often, I think humor is really just a veiled attempt to tear someone down. Too often we're trying to be funny, but really what we're doing is trying to make ourselves feel better by laughing at someone else, or trying to get back at somebody and make them the butt of the joke, or trying to get out our frustrations. And tearing people down, I think, is too often the norm in our interactions. And we don't even notice it because we just live in a culture where that's just what you do. You tear people down, sometimes behind their back and sometimes blatantly to their face. But we're in this series called Healthy Relationships, and we're going to see that as believers, we're called to build others up, even even when you're trying to be funny, right? We've seen the last few weeks in our Healthy Relationships series that we're called to put on the new self. We saw a few weeks ago what it means to answer this call to honor others, to give respect and honor to the people in our lives. Last week, we talked about the priority of humility, that we need to cultivate humility in our relationships with others out of reflection of Christ and what He's done for us. And so this morning, we're going to dig into Ephesians chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at what it means to build others up, if you have one of those Blue Hardback Bibles. We're on page 978. And I do hope that you will have a Bible. Um, You pull it up on your phone. You'll scoot up next to somebody that has a Bible. Here's why at Living Hope we want you to bring your Bible and look at your Bible at church because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that the Bible has been written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even now, as we read it and unpack it, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and can transform us. All I'm trying to do is to help you understand what God has written. And so having your Bible in front of you, being able to follow along or pulling it up on your phone is helpful will help transform and help god speak to your heart so please follow along we're going to pick up in in verse 17 but quick recap from the beginning of the chapter paul is urging the church to walk in love to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and he says at the beginning of the chapter that's humility gentleness patience love and unity And he shares this vision that as Christians, we are one body, we're unified, he says, in a bond of peace by the Holy Spirit. And in that unity, by God's grace, we as a church serve one another, grow together as the body of Christ. We grow into mature manhood. If you have it open in verse 15, he says, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ who is the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm not preaching on that this morning, but what a beautiful vision that we as a Christian community build one another up in love. But from this vision of the church, he transitions in verse 17 to give some more practical life principles and guidance for how we build others up. And we find great principles here for for healthy relationships, not just in the church, but I believe also in the home, in our extended family, and even in the workplace, and in the community. So pick up with me in Ephesians 4 verse 17 as I read, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you're going to hear some very similar concepts to what we read in Colossians 3 and in Romans 12. But let me pause and ask for the Lord to help us, and then we'll read together. God in heaven, we thank you for your love, for the church, and for your word. God, we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit, that as the word is read, as we unpack, that you would speak to us, that this would not be a mere intellectual exercise, but that your Holy Spirit would supernaturally work in our hearts to enlighten us, awaken us, stir us, convict us, that we could be men and women who follow Jesus, who live out healthy, thriving, Christ-centered, love-filled relationships, that we could be a people that build and encourage and honor one another. Be present now, we ask. Come, come, Lord, and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, So if you look back up at verse 17, we see that Christians are called to no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, strictly speaking, a Gentile means someone who's not of Jewish descent from the line of Abraham. Most of the Ephesians reading this were probably Gentiles, with the exception of a couple of you here that I know of. Most of us are Gentiles as well. But here, as in other places in the New Testament, Gentile is not used to talk about ethnicity, but it's meaning anybody living outside of God's covenant, those living in the world rather than living in God's kingdom. And so Christians here are called not to live like people in the world who are living, it says, in the futility of their minds. Now, if something's futile, it means that it's, it's, it's vanity, it's empty, it's pointless. So it means that we're not to live like those who, whose minds and hearts have not been transformed, transformed by the Spirit of God. See, those that are still living in the world are stuck in the pointlessness, the futility of their own thoughts. Non-believers don't have an identity grounded in God's love. They don't have a clear purpose to their life. They don't have the desire or the ability to be free from sin. As the New Living Translation says here, they are hopelessly confused. Verse 18 goes on to say that their understanding of God and themselves and life in general is darkened. It's excluded from the life of God. Now many non-believers are brilliant and productive and we can be Receive wonderful gifts, even from non-believers through God's general grace. Many of, many of them consider themselves enlightened, but the word here says that life apart from God's light is, is simply stumbling around in the dark, ignorant of the truth. Ignorant of the truth around you because when you're in the dark, you can't see what's around you. And so their hearts are hardened to God so that they don't see God, want God, they don't know Him or His way of living. And so 19 says, because their hearts are hardened on the inside, their lives have become callous on the outside. Now, as some of you know from years of hard work, a callous is a a hard area of skin, right, that has become desensitized and there's no longer feeling there. It's just worn over. And, and there's, whether it be through wear and tear or an abrasion, it, it, it's basically numb. It's a, it's, a, it's a numb part of your skin. See, apart from the love and apart from the transformation of Christ, people become callous. People become callous to God, and they begin to give themselves up to, to sensuality. Because with the inability to feel things in the spiritual realm with the Lord, they simply just do what feels good. It says their greed and every kind of impurity... Now, we do need to be careful here because this is kind of describing people in the world outside of, of Christ, but this is not about us looking out and pointing the finger at other people around us and looking at how hard or how darkened they are, right? Because remember what mom said, you point that finger, there's three pointing back at you. And that's actually what the Word is doing here. It's pointing the fingers back at us. Scripture is reviewing all of this In verse 17, it says, as a reminder that you must no longer walk in this way, right? This is about us examining our own hearts. How are we living? How are we walking? And yes, praise God, if your faith is in Christ, you've been born again. You've been adopted as a son or daughter. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, while you have been transformed, the struggle of the Christian life continues. And temptation does threaten to pull you away, to pull you back into the patterns of the world, the very patterns described here. And so 20 to 21 go on to say that this type of confused, callous life in the darkness is not how you came to faith, is not how you came to learn and to know Jesus. In fact, if you have truly met Christ, if you truly know Him and call Him friend and Savior and Lord, if you've truly been taught by Him, then, then trust Him and trust His work in your life. How have we learned Christ? Well, we've learned, and it goes on to describe, this process of transformation that 22 says you take off your old self, which belongs to your former way of living that was corrupted by deceitful desires, and then you are renewed in your spirit, the transformation of your mind, putting on the new self, internal renewal, transformation of of how you think. And so there's this complete overhaul that happens in the life of of Christians. Now listen, you are still you, okay? God takes who you are and transforms you. So you're still the same person, but there's this total renewal, this rebirth. See, Christ came because each and every one of our lives are like crumbling houses that need to be rehabbed, like rusty cars that need to be completely rebuilt from top to bottom, like dying people that need a renewal, a resurrection, And so this morning, for those that have faith in Christ, be reminded again of this process. And for those that are here today still seeking the Lord, still wondering what life is like in His kingdom, looking around at the people maybe in this room saying, how do they have that peace? How do they have that hope? Wrestling, looking for meaning, the call today is to look to Christ, to look to Him for that transformation, for that renewal, because we cannot rebuild or rehab or renew our own hearts. We need to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ came and He died that our old selves would be taken off and put to death. And He rose from the dead that our new selves would be risen up with Him. And we talked a few weeks ago about that process of taking off and putting on, remember? And I didn't bring my jackets this morning. But but through the work that Christ has done, we now are called to take off the old nature and to pick up and put on the new nature. And that daily active call to take off the things of, of sin and to put on the things of Christ is a daily active call of obedience, but it's grounded in the work of Christ. You remember a couple of weeks ago in Colossians 3 when we read this passage, right? In Colossians 3, it reminded us that this is a past reality. You have put off the old self. With its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, it's because we have new life in Christ, because he died for us and rose again for us, that you have the ability to put on the new self. And again, this is a transformation that happens by the sovereign work of God, and it's also a daily struggle that we live out. This new self. To walk in obedience with God. To walk in relationship with others. To walk with peace and joy in this life. What is this new self like? Verse 24 says, Our new identity is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, all humanity was created in the likeness of God, but we fell away. We turned away from God. We sought to live without God to make ourselves our own God. But now in Christ... Through the transforming work of the Spirit, we are being recreated. Christian, you are being recreated after the image of God, not into your own image, not in the image of who you think you would like to be, but in who God wants you to be, His son, His daughter, reflecting Him. Now we can reflect God, it says, in true righteousness, verse 24 says. This does not mean a self-righteousness. This does not mean a hypocritical righteousness or a holier-than-thou attitude. But truly set apart, truly sanctified, meaning meaning made holy, made like God as he is holy. See, to live the Christian life is to live in reflection of God, to treat others as he has treated you, walking like a child, imitating his father, reflecting him. If you look at the, the very first verse of the next chapter in Ephesians, we're going to look at this passage in two weeks. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. You you, you want to have healthy relationships in your home, in the church, in your work. Simply imitate God as a beloved child and walk in love. This is key to our healthy relationships. And this is, as we've said, we're we're looking at these scriptures because this is a struggle. This is a challenge. This is difficult. And there's hurt and brokenness and, and tension in our lives, Some in the most intimate relationships that we have. And so we're studying the Word of God, but we're also going to pray and grow together. And so in a a few moments, at at the end of our service, we're going to invite up some of our leaders, and we're going to pray for one another. We're going to encourage you to come forward and receive prayer for those broken relationships. Receive prayer for those areas of your life where you're not walking in love. Receive prayer for those tendencies to continually tear people down rather than build them up. to Receive prayer for those areas of unforgiveness or bitterness or jealousy that God would work So let the Holy Spirit stir you even as we unpack the rest of this scripture that you could pray with our brother or sister this morning. But as we go on to the next section, look at verse 25, we're going to get practical guidance for three specific areas, three specific behaviors. And we're called to live in truth, in peace, and in generosity. Look at verse 25. Put away all falsehood and put on truth. It says, therefore, having put away... Put away this disposition of deceit. And as Christians, we are called to take off that identity and what? To speak truth to your neighbor, it says there. Now, generally, the word neighbor is kind of a broad term for anybody you relate with. But if you look at at this verse 25, it's making application specifically in the Christian community because it goes on to say, We are members of one another. That's talking there about the body of Christ. Speak truth to one another because we are in the body of Christ. And so, there's specific application. Neighbor is probably, if you look at the original, probably better translated in this context as those close to you. Be a man or woman of truth with those closest to you. And I think we can be, broaden this out to speak truth to everyone, that fostering our healthy relationships, building others up means we have to be truthful. As one commentator said, lies are like poison to personal relationships. You bring lying and deceit into a relationship, it, it will poison that relationship. Now, you may not think that lying is a big problem for you, right? You may not go around all day telling blatant lies, but my mother taught me that a lie is not just any blatant falsehood, but a lie is any time you intentionally deceive someone. Maybe it's a, it's a half-truth. Maybe it's simply leaving out a key detail to make yourself look better. If you're deceiving that person, that's a lie intentionally not saying something. And if you want to build others up and not tear them down, if you want to foster health and love in your relationships, we need to speak truth to one another. Now, this is not a license to be blunt and rude. Okay, truth-telling does not mean you're insensitive. Okay, you, you tell truth with grace. Telling the truth also doesn't mean that you reveal inappropriate details. Okay, so I, I actually believe that we should always be truthful with our children but that doesn't mean that they know every detail that's going on, right? So there's navigating that happens here by the Holy Spirit, but our disposition should not be one of deceit, but one of truth. 26 and 27 says, put away all anger and put on peace. It's interesting, the Word of God says here, be angry and do not sin. That means, yes, you can be angry in a way that is good and right. There's a good and justified, righteous way to be angry. I have counseled people before that have come into my office. I have counseled them to be angry because they were overlooking or or demeaning something hard and hurtful when I said, "I I think what you've been through makes God angry. It's probably appropriate for you to be angry, but not to be sinfully angry, right? Pastor Matt wrote a blog some time ago, and in his blog, he reads all this amazing stuff. And I just let him summarize it for me. But he, re- he quoted John Downham in this book from, the, from a couple hundred years ago called The Cure for Unjust Anger. And, and John Downham defines anger like this, or, or just anger, excuse me, righteous anger. Anger is just and righteous when it is occasioned by a just cause, is expressed in a godly manner, is fixed on the proper object, endures for the appropriate time, and is directed toward holy ends. Leave that on the screen for a minute because people are going to wipe that down or, or take a picture of it. Anger is righteous when it fulfills those five things, right? It has a just cause. It's expressed in a godly way. It's fixed on the proper object. It endures for the appropriate amount of time, and it's directed towards a holy end point. And I want to focus on three ways that I think our anger does become sinful and doesn't live this out. First of all, you can be angry about the wrong things. Okay, you can be angry because someone jumped in front of you in the line at Walmart and now you feel slighted and you didn't get what you wanted and, or you didn't get the recognition you deserved. You, you, you. Most of the time, if your anger is centered around you, not all the time, but often it's a, it's a selfish, sinful anger. Or maybe you're angry because God was dishonored. You're angry because those Who you love were hurt. You're angry because an injustice was done. That, I believe, is a godly anger. Listen, God gets angry. We're called to be His children. We're called to reflect Him. And so there's an appropriate way to be angry as God is angry. So sometimes we're angry about the wrong thing. Secondly, I think you can be angry in the wrong way, right? So the question becomes, what do you do even if it's righteous anger? If one of your kids is hurt by a friend... And their feelings are hurt or they're physically hurt. You might be angry. You probably should be angry. But do you go find that 10-year-old friend of your kids and curse them out? Probably not. Probably not. Don't go there. Right? A coworker may have lied in the workplace to get ahead. and injustice was done. It may be appropriate to be angry about that. But then do you go punch them in the throat? Don't, don't do that. Right? That's not a just way to handle your anger. Your spouse may say something demeaning to you. And it's an injustice. It's not a way that you should be treated. Do you then proceed to give him dirty looks for months and months to come? See, we have to take our just anger and handle it in a just way. Ephesians 4, 4, where this verse is based on, says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In other words, sometimes the best way to handle your anger is to keep it between you and God and to not lash out and to not allow your emotions to over take you. Because that's what happens often as sinful people when we let our anger out. And I'm not saying you push your anger down. I'm saying you give it to God. Okay, clarify. But when we lash out, what happens? Eventually, our anger begins to control us. And that's not the point of any emotion. Emotions are good and right, but but our emotions should not control us. We should control our emotions. And so we take frustration, impatience, hurt, grief, difficulty, and anger, we take it to God. Right? And not not lash out in a in a sinful, unjust way. But I think the other thing that we can do, the third mistake we can make with anger is we just let it fester. We say, Well, Pastor Tim told me I can't I can't curse anybody out, so now I'm just gonna let it fester day after day after day. And we let it build and we let it grow and let it, we become part of you. And now you're not just angry, you are an angry person, and it takes you over. And and when that happens, verse 27 says, what are you doing? You're giving a foothold to the devil, an opportunity, a gap for the devil to get his dirty, little, smelly, stinky, wicked foot into the door of your heart, and then he can build temptation. And then he can take that anger and lead you into bitterness, into jealousy, into prideful thoughts, into crude actions, into rude language. And so the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it linger. Don't let it fester. Don't let it stay there. It may be appropriate to be angry, but you let go of it, you give it to God, and you let Him deal with it. Because as we talked about when we looked at at Romans 12, right, God says, vengeance is mine. It's not not yours. It it belongs to Him. Now, I I do want to take a minute and say that I don't think we should take this particular phrase, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I don't think we should take this too literally. So if I, if I can ha- have permission to, to, to have a little tangent, hermeneutics are the principles of biblical interpretation, how we read the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, but we have to read it rightly as God intended. And, and good principles of hermeneutics dictate that not all of the Bible is to be interpreted literally. Okay? We need to read the Bible literarily. Hear me. That means that the Bible is literature. It's filled with different language. The Bible is not just a list of of rules or do's and don'ts. The Bible is prose and poetry and history and estimation. There's symbolism and idioms and analogies and figurative expressions and quotations of things that are false. False. Now, every part of the Bible is the inherent inspired Word of God. Every part of the Bible is true. Every part of the Bible must be submitted to as the Word of God, but it must be understood and interpreted as God intended. And when the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, I don't think that means that if you get cut off in traffic on the way to work, you now have 12 hours to be angry. But if you get cut off from traf- in traffic at 7.30 at night, you only have 15 minutes because the sun's about to go down, Right? If, this, if that, if we took it too literally, that would mean like in the winter time you have eight hours to be mad, and on the longest days of summer you might have 16 hours to let your anger boil. I mean, good grief. Certain times of the year for people who lived in Alaska, they could be angry for like weeks at a time, right? Because the sun never goes down. So we can't take this too literally. The point is this, take care of your anger. Deal with it. Don't let it sit in your heart day after day, night after night. Don't let it linger without addressing it, without dealing it, without ultimately taking it to God and saying, God, this injustice was done. You were dishonored. A loved one of mine was hurt. I, an injustice was done to me. I, I am angry and I now give my anger to you because I know you were the only one wise good sovereign loving enough to handle it i'm not gonna i'm not gonna carry it any longer now if i can digress just for one more minute um i think sometimes this verse has been misused and apologies to those who who maybe don't like what i'm about to say i think it's been misused in the context of marriage I think the worst marriage advice that I was given early on, you know, was like to to never go to bed angry, never go to bed without resolving an argument. And in my early years of marriage, I took that as literally as literal could be, right? And Karen and I would have a disagreement or or a, a fight, and I tried to think of an example, but they were all too petty and trite and silly to even be memorable. We would literally just stay up later and later and later trying to hash it out. Right? 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. We lived in this little four-bedroom apart, two-bedroom apartment with four rooms. And I would just follow her around from room to room, right? Because we got to get this resolved. I'm still angry. We can't go to bed. What's the problem with that? I don't know about you, but the later it gets, the more impatient I get, the more selfish I get, the more illogical I get, right? Sometimes, listen, couples, sometimes the best thing you can do is just go to bed. Now, don't go to bed angry in the sense that you're yelling and screaming and cursing each other out, okay? Sometimes what you need to do is to say, look, I am so frustrated. I don't understand you, but I love you, and I trust God, and I need some sleep. And you know what happens a lot of the time? If you do that, you wake up in the morning, and you're refreshed. You have new perspective. You roll over, and you say, I love you. Do you remember what we were fighting about? I, no, I don't either. And then you make love, and then you, you go about the rest of your day, and, and it, it's, it's all taken care of right? So get some sleep, okay? Don't let your anger fester, but sometimes you just need to go to bed. All right, digression over. Verse 28, put away theft and put on generosity. The Greek text here literally says the one who steals, right? Not just talking about the the professional thief, but the one who steals must, must no longer steal, I dare say most of us are not full-time jewelry thieves or cat burglars, but we've probably all stolen in our lives, whether it was stealing a toy from a friend as a kid, stealing time from your employer, or noticing that you weren't charged for something in the store and having to make that decision, do I go back in and talk to customer service, right? Now listen, if the customer service line has less than three people in it, you need to get in line and, and let them know that they weren't charged. If it's over three people, then you have a major moral dilemma, right? Like, is it worth 20 minutes of my time? Okay, I'll leave that to you and the Lord. But on some level, we have all probably not upheld the eighth commandment, which says do not steal. Now, the most interesting thing about this verse is that the instructions to the thief is not stop, stop stealing. Stopping, stealing is not enough. It says stop stealing and get a job and work hard. Work so hard that you have an abundance to share with other people who are in need. See, the opposite of stealing is not keeping your hands to yourself. The opposite of stealing is to reach out your hands in generosity, to give and share generously with those in need. And that's a critical principle here that is applicable to nearly every command of Scripture. See, the the reality is You may not be stealing, but are you stretching out your hands to others? Are you regularly, consistently, generously giving and sharing with those in need? See, every negative command in Scripture, every negative command in Scripture, don't lie, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, is willfully doing something wrong, but it is also failing to do something right. Does that make sense? And so... Every command, every behavior we're commanded not to do is the negative side of something we are commanded to do. And so we're, we're not to lie because we are called to be people of truth. We're not to take someone's life, whether it be murder or whether it be with your words. We are called to, to give life to others. We're called not to steal, but to share. Not, don't commit adultery, instead, be patient wait, and have a fulfilling sex life in marriage. Don't tear people down with your words. Instead, what? Build them up. Build them up with what you say. Now, this little section here in 17 or or 27, 25, those verses we just looked at about stealing and thieving and tearing people down. It it may just seem like a list of three bad things. Just stop doing these three things. And honestly, they're not even really like Christian things. Like most people, every religion, even atheists would agree. Like, yeah, you shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie, right? You shouldn't do these destructive, destructive things. But we cannot separate out God's commands and God's expectations that he has given us from God himself, Yes, living out these things is a, is a good, wise way to live, a way that will, that will build healthy relationships, that will build a fulfilling life if you're not stealing and lying and angry, but these things are deeply rooted in our identity as followers of Christ. It's not just a list that most people would agree with. They're grounded in, in who God is and what he's called us to, calling us to live how? After the likeness of him, right? Right? See, God drives every part of the Christian life. First of all, He's our foundation. None of these concepts would have any meaning apart from God. God defines truth. He defines peace. He defines generosity because that's who He is. God God is the foundation of the Christian life because He defines who it is we are to be. He's not just the foundation. He's the direction. See, faith in Christ provides the direction for how we live. Not only does God define right living, but He is the example of right living. He is what we set our minds on, what we set our hearts on. He is the the example, the direction that we pursue and seek after what we run towards in the Christian life. But thirdly, He's the power. Faith in Christ is the power for our lives. See, yes, God is the foundation of, of, of right living. He's the direction for right living, but He's the power as well. As I said, all people agree Everybody's going to agree that yes, humans should, should live in love and truth and peace and generosity, but my, my fear is, and, and, and what the Bible teaches, is that outside of the transforming work of Christ, outside of the Holy Spirit filling and fueling our hearts, we don't have any sustained ability to live out the kind of holy life that we want to live, to live out the kind of holy life that's in reflection of God. And so he defines our lives, he's the example for us, and he's what drives us, he's what empowers us by his Holy Spirit to be the kind of husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and brothers and sisters and friends and workers. It's the grace of God, the love of God, the power of God from beginning to end to empower us for the Christian life. And so with that in mind, turn to the last section in verse 29. We see here about how our words can either tear people down or build them up. And so 29 says, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. This means foul, rotten language. Now, what's interesting is that the Bible nowhere provides a list of curse words. And it actually wouldn't be all that helpful because it would all be in either Greek or Hebrew, and and so it wouldn't wouldn't really be helpful to us. And, And curse words change over time. When I was a kid, I would have never been allowed to say that something was crap. I would have been punished for that, right? Now I feel like it's just like a given thing that, that people just use and talk about. And I did have curse words growing up, growing up in the eighties. My brother and I had what I would call like PG rated curse words. And, and and curse words for us basically comprised of this. Okay? You take you take a a, a private part or you take a, a potty word, okay, and you use it as a prefix. You assign that prefix to either face or head. Okay, so curse words were either like, you know, toilet face, for example, is one that I can say in church. Most of them I probably couldn't say in church, right? Now, you may or may not consider those curse words. They all had more than four letters, but the point is not what specific words you're using, but how are you using those words, right? Our words have power. Our words can tear people down or our words can build people up. Next week, we're going to look at James, And the book of James talks about the power of the tongue, and we'll look at that in more detail, and we'll talk next week about how to use the tongue in a way to disagree and argue respectfully. So how do you use your words? You can take the same hammer and use it for demolition to tear a bathroom down, or you can use it for construction to to build a, a new bathroom. And our words, as followers of Christ, are called to build others up, not tear them down. And many of us know the power of words because we carry to this day the scars of harsh, demeaning words that were spoken to us, some of them decades ago, and they are still fresh wounds in our heart. But everything that comes out of our mouths in reflection of God, what does it say there? Should be good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What, what a beautiful expression. Give grace to those who hear. And I think this, this needs to begin in the homes. Husbands and wives, how do you speak to one another? Not just when the kids are in the room, but even when they're out of the room. Fathers and mothers, how do you speak to your children? Are you building others up? And ask yourselves that diagnostic question. Did what I just say, is what I'm about to say something that is going to give grace to the people that hear it. Grace is what God has given to us, right? He's given us his love, his favor, his blessing. What you have received, now give to others. And so listen, friends, as your pastor, there should not be yelling and screaming in our homes. There should not be cursing in your homes. There should not be a belittling tone. These have no place. Men, men, please hear me. If you are in this habit of cursing or yelling or screaming or belittling your wives and your childrens, get on your knees and repent and ask God to forgive you, and he is gracious to forgive. And then ask your, your wife to forgive you. Ask your children to forgive you. And then ask another Christian man, say, will you pray for me and will you hold me accountable because I have been using my tongue to tear down the people in my home? And and women of the church, the elders want to say to you that if you have a husband that's in the habit of using foul, abusive, or demeaning language with you or your children, and he refuses to get help, please come speak to us. We will not take this lightly, and we do need to get involved. And even in Christian homes, there's far too much of this that is happening, and so we need the grace of God. We need to be refilled with His Spirit to act and to give as He has acted and given to us. Now listen, part of building others up means at times there needs to be instruction, there needs to be correction, there needs to be even criticism, right? And I was talking to Mike Wagner this week. Now if you know Wagner, he's a straight shooter, right? He, he's been on the job site for, for the last 20 years and, and so he does not pull any punches. I still remember the time he was leading worship and he introduced a, a song talking about the Kool-Aid man breaking through the, breaking through the wall, right? And, and so I gave Mike some, some, some input, some constructive criticism about, about worship and about him growing in, in leadership. And you know what he said to me? He said, man, I really appreciate that. He said, sometimes Christians are just too nice to give each other constructive criticism. He said, but I need it and I want it, right? See, part of speaking the truth and love to one another is coming alongside of someone, And when they're being selfish, you tell a friend when they're being selfish. When I am out of line, my wife comes and hopefully gently and graciously and respectfully and she tells me, Tim, you're out of line. You need to take a minute. Even criticism can either tear somebody down or it can build somebody up. Even criticism should be constructive, not destructive, right? Now, as I said earlier, when it comes to building other people up, that does make humor really, really hard. Now, I love to laugh and I'm going to continue to fight to figure out ways to to be funny while building people up. And our family can be very sarcastic. If you're in the dance household, I've gotten myself into trouble so many times when kids come over because I use sarcasm with them and and they like start crying and I'm like, oh no, they didn't get it. You know, (laughs) like somebody gets up one time, a kid was over, and they got up to like get more veggies from the veggie tray, and I said, you can't get any more vegetables until you drink all that soda. You know, and they're like, Ugh. like, my kids know I'm just, I'm being sarcastic, right? Ephesians 5, 4 says this. We're going to look at this chapter in two weeks, but I wanted to pull this out now. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So you can laugh and you can tease in a lighthearted way. You can poke fun and you can have fun. You can tell jokes. But are you doing that to make the other person feel stupid? Are you doing that to bring joy and life and to build others up? And so we're we're not to be filthy or have foolish talk or crude joking. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let, Let your words build other people's up. See, our moms taught us, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I don't actually think that's the best advice. The word of God says, if you don't have anything nice to say, here's what you do. You pause. You pray. You confess that to God. You say, God, change my heart. Give me your heart. Give me your eyes for the people around me. Instead of speaking words that tear down, help me to speak words of thanksgiving, speak words of kindness, speak words that build others up, and maybe that's a prayer you have every morning, maybe it's a prayer that happens in the split second, the split second between the time that thought comes into your mouth and you catch it before it goes, or it comes in your head, you catch it before it goes out of your mouth, and in that moment, you say, no, God, help me to find one thing to be thankful for, one thing to encourage this person for, and God will give us the grace to do this to be people who, by God's Holy Spirit, because of his example, because of the transforming work of Christ, give us the ability to, to live out what Colossians 4, 6 says. It says, very similar, let your speech always be gracious. Listen, if we're people who have received the grace of God, who have been defined by the grace of God, then our very lives, every moment, every thought, every word, every action should be gracious Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so verse 31 goes on to say, put away any habit or even any trace of destructive talk. Bitterness and unrighteous anger and shouting and screaming, tearing someone down with slander, all forms of malice, it said, all forms of spite. Verse 32 says, instead, what? Treat people around you with kindness with tender heartedness, That means that we're gentle, we're compassionate with the people in our lives. And you have to ask God for compassion, ask him for grace and sensitivity. And then it goes on to say, forgive each other just as God and Christ forgave you. We heard that same thing in Colossians chapter three, Christian, you have been forgiven an immeasurable debt. And so forgiveness for us is not optional. It's an expectation for every follower of Jesus. Now here is the critical thing about all of these instructions in Ephesians 4. It all is grounded in, it all has its source in the work of Christ. The Christ who died for you and through faith in him, your old nature died with him. He rose for you and through your faith in him, your new nature has been brought to life with him. And so now you are called to live out that new reality. Now you are called to live in your new nature to take off the old self, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't walk out of here with a list. Don't walk out of here with with things you need to do better. Walk out of here with your eyes on Christ transformed by his work. We, each of us, each of us were created in the likeness of God, and now through the transforming work of the Spirit, we are being recreated after the likeness of God, and so we're called to be holy as He is holy, to be loving as He is loving, and when we are not, when you do lie and you do steal and you do act in anger and you do speak with words that tear your loved ones down, it hurts them, it destroys any chance of healthy relationships, but it's not beyond God's forgiveness and God's ability to heal and to work. See, ultimately, what's going on in our relationships with others is ultimately grounded and and birthed out of our relationship with God, and He can forgive, and He can transform. And when we slip up, and when we walk in a way that hurts others, yes, they are sad, and yes, they are hurt, and some of those relationships may never be prepared, but it also impacts your relationship with God. What does verse 30 say? It says that he is grieved by our sin. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. See, God's Spirit dwells in you. He lives in you to transform you into the image of God. And yes, he is saddened. Yes, he is saddened. Yes, he is grieved when we sin, when we tear others down, when we lie or when we're angry. And so cry out to the Holy Spirit, cry out to the Holy Spirit that has sealed you for the day of redemption and to say, and to say, help me, help me to follow your leading, help me to love as I have been loved, help me to imitate God as my father, to build people up, to treat them with the grace that I have been given. And so you take your heart to God with courage, with hope, with the hope of this, you belong to him, you have been sealed, it says there in verse 30. Listen, you're not earning God's favor. You are living in the favor that Christ earned for you on your good days and on your bad days, on the days when you feel worthy and the days when you feel empty, when you feel like a failure. Your place in God's kingdom has been sealed. Your status as his beloved son or beloved daughter has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he will hold you. He will keep you until the day of redemption. And he will enable you, while maybe slower than you would like, he would enable you to be renewed day by day into the image of Christ. Amen? And so let's be a people who seek God and walk in love. And so as the worship team comes, I, I want to invite us now into a time of prayer, into a time of worship, into a time to seek the Lord, to, to rest in His grace, to rest in His work, and to seek direction and power to live out the Christian life. And so our life group leaders are going are gonna to come up now. You guys can gather on the sides, and we want to be available to pray with you. And you're going to see a bunch of broken men and women come up, and, and, and you're going to see them come up here not because they, they've always gotten it right but because we're willing to just stand and, and to be used by God. Elders and deacons and life group leaders, if you guys would come and be available to pray for those in need this morning. And we're going to close with a time of worship. The worship team's going to lead us in a couple of songs. And then I invite you to, to stand with us as we sing. Although some of you may need to kneel and may need to seek God quietly. And I encourage you to be bold, to be bold and to come up. We have a bunch of people up here I'd love to pray for everyone in this room because I don't know about you, but I know I have relationships that need God's grace, that needs God's healing. I know that I have tendencies in my own life where I need wisdom. I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to live and to foster healthy relationships. So let's stand together as we pray and as we worship. Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would work in our hearts. As you've worked through our worship and through time in the Word, would you stir us and feed us even as we pray for one another? Even as we repent before you, even as we offer songs of worship, come Holy Spirit and empower us to live as you've called us to live, to be faithful, to be obedient, to be loving, to be gracious in ways that we cannot do in our own flesh. Father, heal our marriages. Heal the relationships with our children that are, that are strained. Heal those outstanding relationships with extended family or with old friends Give us grace in the workplace, in our teams, in our classes, that we could be people who walk in love and grace, who give grace to those who hear, who build one another up. Holy Spirit, hear our worship and transform us by your grace. We offer these songs and these prayers. We offer our very lives to you. Be lifted up. Come now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.